You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, myself, and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, we are talking about a specific yet very important thing that has happening within the German HTA area the famous 15% threshold. If you don't know what that is, stay tuned. You will be amazed about why this is important and how this is impacting all the clinical studies. In this episode, I'm talking to Michael Henning. I know him for a very, very long time. He is very, very experienced statistician in the German area. Actually, he knows a lot about everything European HTA. He has worked for various big companies and is actually currently looking for a new company. So if you are interested in hiring him, just let me know and I'll put you in touch. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to the PSI website at psi.web.com to learn more about PSI activities become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And today I'm really excited to speak about a topic that is really important for everybody who wants to bring new medications to the general public beyond regulatory approval. And for that, I have an expert here that has a lot of expertise with this specific topic, but also in general with all the post-regulatory approval market access topics around in Europe. Michael Hennig. How are you doing, Michael? I'm fine. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks for inviting me, Alexander. Very good. So before we dive into the technical topic, maybe you can give a little bit of a description of yourself, an introduction of yourself. What have you been doing so far in your really quite long career overall? Yes, happy to introduce myself. Actually, I'm from education. I studied statistics in the wonderful University of Dortmund in Nordrhein-Westfalen. And since then, I have been at different locations also within the clinical development process, starting for a pharma company who was mainly caring about metabolic diseases, where I learned to plan phase three studies and analyze them, did some programming also. And then I was also at university at the Institute of Medical Statistics where I did a lot of consulting for the doctors at the clinicum who wanted to plan their studies. We were also responsible as a statistical analysis center for a large phase four study at these days. 
And yes, after a couple of further stations, I finally, yes, arrived in the very special arena of HTA, Health Technology Assessment, where it was all about what happens to a drug after it approved, after it's on the market. And I think not only in Germany, where my focus, this is topic which is very much discussed and where it is all about showing the added benefits of a drug. And this is what I did over the last 10 years and which was also Yes, showing me that the perspective you have when you design a phase three study and are successful by launching a new medicine, this is good, but this is not everything you need. Then for HTA, the story starts again, actually. And this is what made me very exciting, excited about this aspect, because I believe This is also a very important arena for statisticians. Uh, it's not sufficient to bring only good drugs with good statistical expertise to the market, but it's also important to care about the time uh, after the drug is on the market. And this is what I did after the during the last 10 to 12 years. Yeah, it's not sufficient to have a label. It's really important to also make sure that the drugs are reimbursed. And in most countries where you have a national healthcare system, that goes through the health technology process and through which you look into first, is there some medical benefit over the existing treatments? Not so much about placebo, but existing treatments. And is the cost also in line with this added benefit. If you look into the US, you have actually some aspects that go into the similar direction. You have the ISA Institute there, which looks very similar into how much more value you get for every dollar you pay. And so that is what we are discussing here today as well. We are not going into the dollars so much, but more about the added benefits, the added medical benefit for the moment. So the German system has a very specific topic. And Germany is really important because it is by far the biggest market in Europe. And there are some further consequences of it in Europe. First, the prices of many other European countries are connected to the price in Germany through a reference price system that we have here. So the price in Germany does not only affect the people in Germany and your reimbursement status here and your your business opportunity in Germany here as a, as a sponsor, but it affects countries across Europe. And if you see Europe as a whole, it's of course a huge market with hundreds of millions of patients and therefore very relevant. Now, in Germany, there is another aspect that is really important, and that is with the emerging EU-HTA harmonization effort that is going on. Since the UK left Europe, so 
at least from a political point of view, not from a geographical point of view, of course, Germany is by far the biggest weight in terms of HDE bodies here in Europe. And if you look into the participants list of the new HDA regulations and how that is set up, you can directly see that. In Germany, we have two players. The first is the GBA, which is the federal official political decision maker. And then you have also the ICWIC, which is the more scientifically guided, specifically very statistically oriented consulting body to the GBA. And both have a lot of representatives in this overall process. Actually, more than double the number of the representatives than the next big country in this overall process. And therefore, you can probably assume that everything that's going on in Germany will have a big impact, also from a methodological point of view, across Europe. And that's why this topic we are talking about today is really important. If you work on phase two and phase three studies, because a lot what we will talk about cannot be saved thereafter. And stay tuned for this really interesting discussion. And now let's talk about the problem itself. Michael, what problem are we talking about? I think the problem we should talk about today is about how to assess whether there is real and added benefit for the patients. Because I think this essentially is the key question which is to be addressed in the HDA process. And therefore, of course, there are various ways in how to address this question. And one, one way is in, to, in assessing the additional benefit of a new drug by a so-called minimal important difference. And this minimal important difference, sometimes also called MCID, minimal clinical important difference, is this difference, which essentially the patient feels and is really caring about. And there is a lot about the MID also in the statistical literature, because it's a key question on how to determine this threshold. And therefore, this, I think, is a very important topic, how to come to this MID and how to perform the statistical analysis around this MID, because this, at the end of the day, gives you an impression on how a drug works with regards to the patient relevance, which I think everything is all about, especially in this process. So this is a topic, I think, which is of... Uh, major interest and where also we as statisticians play a very big role in how to deal with this construct. Yeah, and we are talking here about not the group level clinical difference, but what's happening on the patient level. That's a little bit complex thing because if you look into minimally clinical important differences, you can look into many different things. You can look into 
group differences. You can look into uh, group differences before and after giving treatment, or you can also look into differences uh, over time for a single patient. And the last thing is what we actually talk about. So the problem occurs if you have something of a questionnaire or some kind of continuous outcome where you see an improvement over time for a patient. And what happens then? Yes, this is exactly the, the, the point to, to see how we develop this difference on a patient level. Because at the end of the day, it's about an endpoint which is binary. Either you see an, a relevant effect within a patient or you do not see a relevant effect. And what threshold to use? This is a key question on a patient level. And typically, what is done in elaborating on this uh, threshold is to, to ask the question to the patients on how uh, they feel about a change and how they realize a change in a specific question. I have been, I think it's always easier to make this and at a specific example. I was working very often in the pneumology area where the patients had either asthma or COPD. And here there is a very established questionnaire, the so-called SGRQ, the St. George Respiratory Questionnaire, where patients are asked on their symptoms with regards to their breathing capacity. And this is a questionnaire which essentially gives you back a scale from 0 to 100. Zero meaning there is totally large difficulties with breathing, 100, everything is fine. And here, uh, the question is really what is relevant uh, for a patient. And uh, typically, you do a lot of studies uh, in which you ask the patient uh, what is really felt by them. Is it already one scale which is felt by the patient? Is it, is it two? Is it, is it more? And so essentially, it all starts with involving the patients on asking them what is felt by them as a relevant difference. And this is a starting point in establishing these so-called MCIDs or MIDs. And this is uh, a long and important scientific journey you have to take because it's not only about asking a couple of patients and then setting something. Of course, you have to consider the variation between the patients. You have to establish the psychometric properties uh, of these. At the end uh, of the day, after uh, quite some analysis steps, you establish an MCID on a patient-reported outcome level. So you do this for the SGRQ, as I just mentioned the example. You do this for other questionnaires, but the key point is you have to do this for every single patient-reported outcome by asking the patients and by analyzing all these data you get from this adequately. And so there is a rich literature also about these MCIDs for various points in the various indications. And this is typically the starting point you have to consider 
when you address the question, what is really relevant for the patient? Is the change you observe relevant or is it not relevant? And uh, statistically speaking, once again, you have a dichotomous yes, decision. So either a change for a patient is relevant or not. And then you compare these relevant changes from the one group with the other group and, and see whether you really have yes, a benefit of the drug with regards to this MCID. So this is, in a nutshell, how it works. And this is, I think, good scientific practice to involve the patients, to do a lot of statistical framework about having a certain, yes, certainty also with regards to the stability of this MCID. And this is how you typically should do it from a scientific point of view. Yeah, and if I now listen to this, my statistical heart kind of breaks a little bit because if we optimize a continuous endpoint, of course, we throw a lot away information. Yeah. And that, of course, leads to less precision, less power, all these kind of different things. However, here as a sponsor or as a CRO or as a consultant, that you work with. You need to play by the rules of the game. And so these kind of things are pretty much set in stone and you can't really argue about it. Yeah. I think it's another field to change these rules overall on a more kind of policy discussion. But if you are in the discussions about Getting reimbursement for specific treatment, you can't change the rules. So even though you might think, oh, that's a really bad idea to create a binary endpoint here. Welcome to the real world. This is how, it, how it's done. So the problem, of course, is when you create these binary endpoints, if you have everything established, then I think that's a good thing. But if you have not, what happens then? If you come with your not established MCID, or if you just come with your continuous endpoint, what would the eQuick say? First of all, you already mentioned within eQuick, there are a lot of statisticians working. And I think also for them looking at a binary endpoint, which is created based on the continuous endpoint is perhaps not the optimal thing, but also looking through their eyes. I think what I have learned in the in discussions with them is, of course, it's statistically not, not optimal, but on the other hand, you have already an endpoint, which includes this, this relevance, because if you would do this over the classical way by considering as a continuous endpoint, then at the end, you also would then need a decision on whether a difference you have observed on the continuous endpoint is of relevance. And mm -hmm. so they, they, they put it the other way around. I also believe that this is not the very best uh, way. But as you mentioned, this is how the environment works. And of course, as someone who works in this environment, you at a certain point, you have to accept this. And therefore, th this is a way we, which is fine. 
But as you mentioned, if you do not have an established endpoint or already, or if you do not yet have a, a minimal important difference, you always have a problem. You can go back to the continuous endpoint and then compare these groups on a continuous levels. And then it's always up to the question whether the observed difference, even if it's statistically significant, what we believe now, is really of clinical relevance. But this clinical relevance is then on a group level. It's mm. no longer on a patient level, which we discussed before. It's on a group level. And therefore, you have to yes include experts in asking them, do you believe whether this observed mean difference of X points is of clinical relevance. And then you turn the problem to the clinical experts, which sh should provide you an answer on this, this key question. And so this is option number one, if you do not have something. And typically, the EQIC says they, they're going to have a look at, at this. They're going to cons consider it. But very clearly, their preference is on this dichotomy, this binary thing we discussed before. And therefore, they very recently, I think now it's uh, one and a half year ago, they established a threshold on their own, which they think if you do not have something, you can use this threshold. They do not call it anymore an MCID. They call it a plausible threshold for a relatively small but scientifically certain noticeable change. So I had to learn this phrase also. And they said, looking at their, looking at the literature on this, they identified a threshold. And this threshold is 15% of the scale of the endpoint. So if you have an endpoint, coming back to the example from the SGRQ with a range from 0 to 100, they say you can use a threshold of 15%, So whenever there is a patient who develops a change which is 15 or greater, this patient would have would be considered as a patient with a noticeable change and a patient with a value below is a patient without a noticeable change. So this is how the EQIC recently addressed this, this problem when you do not yet have established uh, a threshold. They introduced a new threshold, which is quite high. If you compare to the literature and coming back to the SGRQ, the typically established MCID for the SGRQ is four, four points. And there is a lot wow. of literature around this and showing that this is the order of magnitude, which is felt by the patient. And this four points, yes, compares to 15 points within the equic threshold. So the factor is about four. So it's four times higher if you apply this threshold compared to the established threshold. And this, of course, was a matter of large debate with, within Germany over the last years, as you can imagine, because a lot of statisticians were, were starting the discussion with, with the EQIC and also with the GBA on this topic. And But at the end of the day, this is now a, a value which has to be considered in the process uh, of Germany 
And of course, not everybody is uh, happy about this because it really, in, in some situations, it really leads to, to values which are very high compared to the traditional values. And therefore, yes, within the German statistical community, colleagues of mine and myself try to make a lot of noise uh, about this. We published quite, quite some papers on this also within the eSport community to raise the awareness about this. But at the moment, this is still an official statement of, of the EQUIC, which is to 100% followed by, by the GBA, who finally makes the decision. And therefore, yes, of course, this is how it works right now. But looking at the European HDA assessment, as you already indicated in the introduction, Alexander, yes, makes me feel a little bit concerned whether this is also taken on the European level, because I believe this is not the best scientific way. Of course, it's an easy to handle way, because yep. it's a very easy to calculate threshold. You can apply this for any endpoint. So it's very easy. You don't have to do many studies uh, about this. You don't have to ask many patients about this. So it's easy to apply. But is it really the best way? Let's put a question mark at this point. Yeah, there's a couple of problems, of course, with that. So, for example, if you look into the scale that you just discussed with zero being worst, 100 being best health, and you have a 15-point change that is clinically meaningful, then basically everybody beyond 85 points on the scale can never experience that. Yeah? So if you go from 86 to 100, you go from impaired to perfect, that's not meaningful for them. Yeah? The other problem that also happens if you, for example, have very skewed scales. So I'm just thinking about scales that is used in psoriasis, the PASI or just PASI called. It goes from zero to 72. It's highly skewed. Yeah. So the usual cutoff and the mean Value is usually something around 20 and, and higher means worse in, in this case. But there's largely nobody beyond, let's say, 35 or, or definitely beyond 40. Yeah. Because 72 would mean your complete body is covered in thick, scaly red plugs. And that's just what happens. Beyond 50 is nearly, you can't live with that. Yeah. There's only outliers in that area. Yeah. So the real range doesn't go from zero to 72. I don't know. 99% of the patients are from zero to 40 or something like this. But still, of course, you would use the 15 between zero and 72, which is 10.8 points change. Mm -hmm. If you imagine, yeah. So that's the, just the entry criteria to go into a study is 10 or 12. Yeah. That is in, in about that range. Yeah. Now, the good side is we have some biologics that really help quite dramatically. So lots of patients still get onto this. But if you look into, let's say, topical treatments and things like that, yeah, that's a completely different story. 
or if you look into more mild patients, so mild patients are those that have less than 10 on that scale. Yeah. They have less than 10. So by definition, they never can get a clinically meaningful improvement, which is completely weird. Yeah. So you have a disease and you cannot reach it by definition. Weird is that. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I totally agree. And this was also a matter of debate we had in the discussion because we put it that way that in the population you investigate, you typically do not have the entire range because the entire range from zero to 100, you may observe them, yes, in the whole population, but you are obviously here in a population of patients who suffer from the disease. Yeah. And therefore, they do not cover the entire range from zero to 100. They only cover a certain range because if they had zero in this example, they would not be in, in the study because they would not suffer. And therefore, exactly, this is a point. You have a difference between the theoretical scale and the practical scale within the population, patient population of interest. And this is not considered by these 15% because Once again, this 15% goes on the entire range, refers to the entire range and not of the, in the range of, of interest. Yep. Yes, but this is exactly one of the few points we criticized on this procedure. What are other critique points that you have mentioned? I think one fundamental point, the patient missing patient centricity, because what I understand from the typically process which I highlighted at the beginning is that you have to ask the patient on what is really uh, meaningful, what is meant uh, by him. And with the procedure suggested by the eQuick, there is no longer any patient voice within there. It's just a, a set threshold of 15%. It applies for all diseases It applies for all patient-reported re, patient outcomes. So it's a, a one-size-fits-all approach, which is not considering the patient aspect. And of course, we know that the patient aspects from disease to disease, from endpoint to endpoint, but of course also from patient to patient, We know about this variation. I think as a statisticians, we also know how to handle this variation. But to put a, a threshold for all patients in all diseases, in all endpoints, I think this does not make sense because there are variations. And therefore, one should consider these variations. There may be difference in, in oncology compared to psoriasis. It's not all the same. It's not one size fits all. There are differences. And there may be even situations where a change of more than 15% is, is more meaningful. But this is 15%. Um, I think it's not meaningful, especially from this patient perspective, because at the end, what we are doing here is trying to assess the added benefit for a patient. And therefore, I think it's always a, good, it's a must to ask the patient on what is meaningful. And this patient voice is, is left behind in this 15% approach. Yeah. However, you can get around it if yes. you do your research well. Yeah. So this only happens 
if you come to the market, haven't done exactly this patient-centric mm. research before. Yeah? If right. you have not consulted with statisticians that know about everything about market access, yeah? if you have just focused only on the FDA and the EMA, not considered what happens thereafter. Mm. So when would actually be a good time to look into these kind of different things so that you avoid these kind of situations once you have market authorization? Mm -hmm. Of course, you should start this at the very earliest. When designing a study, you should make, you, you should definitely involve statistical expertise by investigating these properties of the MCIDs uh, right from the beginning. What we did very often in studies where we investigated a new endpoint is that we also set up a small pilot study in which we uh, did this additional exercise where we asked the patients and where we already where we really created solid evidence which showed us uh, which changes are we talking about in these patients which are of interest to us. So whenever you have a chance to do this uh, in a pilot study or in an extra study, this is definitely a good choice because then you have the evidence which you can use also for the HTA purposes. And this is actually also an advice I would give that you Apart from these must-have 15%, which the authorities need to look, you should create as much as meaningful additional evidence to show also with appropriate sensitivity analysis on the robustness of the results. And this starts already at the very beginning of a study. And uh, it is not enough to, yes, to run the analysis after the study has, has finished. Coming back to your point, start as early as possible, involve statistical brains uh, as early as possible by, yes, doing additional exercise, by creating evidence, to have a rich body of evidence, which you should share with uh, Equic. Yeah. And so that means, basically, if you talk about a study, it's potentially already a phase two study, yeah, latest when you mm -hmm. plan your phase three study. You should have these discussions with statisticians that also know about all the market access uh, topics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And this perhaps is also a good point to, to address also one observation I, I made in the past in general about when to involve statistics. Very often, Statistic, statisticians are involved at a very late stage when you have to rescue your data, let, let's put it that way, to make uh, an analysis which, which is appropriate. This, I think, is not the best way to involve statisticians. You should do so from the very beginning to create the evidence which really answer those questions you have. And the question we have here is, what change is relevant for a patient? And therefore, I think it is very important to to do this by involving statisticians right from the beginning and not only at the end. I think for us, Alexander, this is an, a no-brainer, but I wanted to use also this platform to, to address this topic once again because very often 
we we come in too late, unfortunately. And of course, we can rescue some things, but it's even better if you are the arch architect uh, of the body of evidence right from the beginning. Yes, I don't remember who said it. The the three most important points a statistician should focus on are design Design and design. design. (laughs) Exactly, nothing to add to that, yes. And yeah, as all the statisticians listening to this probably can completely relate to this topic. And yeah, one thing that is really important is we have so many different statistical experts nowadays. Yeah, it's as a statistician, it's really hard to be an expert in all different areas. Yeah. Maybe you're an expert in phase two dose finding studies. Maybe you're an expert in phase three studies. Work with other statisticians that have expertise in the other areas. You don't need to be someone that knows it all. Pull in experts from other areas, from experts that know about psychometric development of new questionnaires. Many of the big companies have specific organizations for that. And for me, it was always really important as a statistician to work with these patient-recorded outcome or nowadays called COA, core groups, because it's a whole new world looking into this. Thanks so much, Michael. That was awesome to talk about this. Thank you. What is your last kind of thought that you would like our statisticians listening take away from this episode yes perhaps in addition to what you already mentioned alexander that you have to the statistician you should network also with other statisticians if you are in a large company you should uh, certainly also connect with those people within your company but very often People who are working in smaller companies where they do not have the statistical expertise go out and connect also cross industry. There are a large number of organizations which do both on a national and international level. I did this research work here with the ISPOR colleagues from other companies where we are the experts. We were also connecting with psychometric, with people with more psychometric experience than I have. So do connect also with other folks around. There are so many organizations within Germany. We have also the APF, Arbeitskreis Pharmazeutische Forschung. So there is so much uh, statistical brain and knowledge around. It is uh, really worthwhile to connect with these experts because, as you mentioned, you can't be expert in every single field, but uh, it's important to connect and to talk to those people who have this experience because at the end, everybody can get something out of it. It's definitely always a win-win situation. Use these expertise and go for this uh, experience. I think it's for the sake of your own development, but also for the sake of the question you want to address. And this would be my very final advice. Awesome. Yeah. Not only go to the conferences where you talk to the people that work in the same area, also go to these others like Cochrane, Colloquium, these kind of areas where you meet statisticians that have very complementary background to your background. Thanks so much. Thank you, Alexander. Thanks for having me. And it was a pleasure to talk with you. 
was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS who helped with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be effective.